How many of us are ready for God's word this morning? Are you? Amen. Well, I got a, I have a question to ask you. Did you enjoy Pastor YJ? Oh, you can do better than that. Can I get a witness, please? You know, uh, if you're, if you're here today and you're like, what is he talking about? Can I get a witness? You didn't listen to yes, uh, last week's message. I got a chance to listen to that, and uh, that was a blessing. Wow, what a blessing. I'm so glad um, he got to share that with us, and I'm glad to be back with you. Do you notice we got a little sun? Just a little, just a little. Um, We've been talking about David. In fact, we are in the fourth message of a series on David and his life, and we've said every week, David is an amazing character. And one of the reasons we're so drawn to David is because he's so ordinary, but he does extraordinary things. And because he's ordinary, we relate to him. And because he does extraordinary things, he gives us hope and vision for what we can do. And the truth is, you can. And we've said every week, you're a David because God chose you. And you might be here today and you might be feeling, well, I don't feel chosen. Then you need to line up with God's word. Because God's word says, you love him because he first loved you. No one comes to God unless he chooses to draw them. And so if, God, if you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because God drew you by divine appointment. By divine appointment. And so that makes you a David. And he anointed you with his Holy Spirit. If you've given your life to Christ in faith, then you receive the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says he is your deposit for salvation. He's what seals you for the day of redemption. The apostle Paul says it in different ways. He says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. So if you belong to him, you have the Holy Spirit. That's the same anointing that came over David to help him defeat Goliath. Come on, do you have a Goliath in your life you want to defeat? You know, the truth is, we've seen David go through a lot. He started in the field. And we saw that very first week, uh, we talked about Saul was rejected. Saul was the current king. He was the first king of Israel. He was rejected because the Lord got tired of him disobeying. And, And Saul made it a habit to disobey God. And he disobeyed God and disobeyed God and disobeyed God to the point that God said, you're no longer gonna be the king over Israel because I need a king who can obey me, who has a heart after mine who desires to obey me with all of his heart. And so he rejected Saul and sent Samuel, the prophet, to anoint David. Problem is, Samuel tells Jesse he's coming. They all consecrate themselves. Everyone is lined up waiting for the prophet. All seven boys. Problem is, there's eight of them. The eighth one is David. They forgot him in the field. They didn't even think about him. Isn't that interesting? And God says... While everyone is looking at the outer, God looks at the inner. If you're concerned with the outward uh, notion of things and, and, the, and the way things appear, I want you to know God looks at the heart. And so David is anointed as king. The very next chapter, he defeats Goliath through a series of circumstances. We preached on that, and I won't go over it anymore. But that puts him on the king's radar. Now, he had been playing the harp for the king, but the king didn't really know him. 
He was just a musician that served the king. After he kills Goliath, he turns to his commander, uh, Abner, and says, who is that young man? Abner says, I don't know, but I'll find out. And from that moment on, the Bible says Saul did not let him leave his service. It's very quickly that David goes from playing the harp to serving in the army. He quickly rises through the ranks and he finds himself as a commander. And then he's commanding thousands. And every battle he goes into, the Bible says he's scary good. What do we mean by scary good? He's so good, he frightens Saul. And every time that Saul sees how God is with him, he gets more and more intimidated to the point that he tries to kill David. He gets, he gets so flustered and frustrated and that'll do it. Uh, this will do it to you when you come home from battle and all the town is singing, especially the ladies. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And that's what happens when God decides to promote you. Things just go your way. And so, so Saul tries to kill him, tries to pin him to a wall with a, with a, uh, with a spear, and David's done nothing. He's done nothing but be faithful. Saul tells him to do something, he does it. Saul sends him into battle to the front lines, he does it. Saul puts him over more troops and gives him harder battles, he does it. Everything he just keeps doing to honor his, his spiritual authority, his, his father, so to speak, his father figure, the king. And God gives him more and more favor. You find, you find that David has favor with Saul's children even. Saul's oldest son becomes David's best friend. Saul's daughter becomes David's wife. Both these kids, or both these relationships are instrumental to helping David elude Saul's hand. That's dead set on killing him. And, and I want you to know something. I mean, this seems super unfair. Super unfair. And you might be asking yourself, Pastor, what is the key to David's success? I want you to know that every single sermon you will see the same key. And that is to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. Every single message I've emphasized for the last four, fear the Lord. This is what he says in Psalms 111. In Psalms 111 he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm, but I believe it was David because you see those same words echoed in Solomon's writings. And it seems right to me that David would share that with his son and his son would grow up and share it with his son. And that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. And you'll see that over and over and over in David's life. In fact, he finds himself in a very precarious position. Lord, I fear you, and I do everything to honor you, and yet, this isn't fair that the king keeps coming after me. Come on, anyone ever feel like life isn't fair? Like, you know, I've been doing everything, I've been checking all the boxes, I've been showing up to church, I've been, I've been you know, just doing everything I can to walk the walk, and yet it just keeps conspiring against me. And you've got to be careful with that feeling, because that's the feeling that the enemy wants you to have just before he brings you up against one of his greatest temptations. And, I, and I'm telling you, the enemy wants to tempt you in that area of feeling unfair, because when you feel like things are unfair, then you can justify a lot of actions. 
What do I mean by that? Well, guess what? This has been unfair to me, so therefore I have a right to. Or I've waited long enough. You know, they're doing wrong. Why can't? And this is where David finds himself for most of this message. We're going to cover chapters 24, 25, and 26. And as we go through, you're going to see that that there's a theme that keeps reoccurring. That's just not fair. And I want you to ask yourself, are you going through a circumstance today where you can honestly say, that's just not fair? It's just not fair. The way things are unfolding and the way things are conspiring. And, and I, want to, I want to get right into it, so let's go for it. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So, how did David get to En Gedi? Saul was no longer hiding behind a fake smile. He was no longer hiding behind this, this ploy, oh, let's keep, let's keep David close and see if I can orchestrate his death. No, the gloves are off, the mask is gone, he's made his intentions clear, I want to kill you. Both Saul's daughter and Saul's son helped David escape, and now he's on the run with about 600 mighty men. And you might say, where did he get these men? The Bible says they were the outcasts. They were the ones in debt. They were the ones with very little future. They were the ones that had been struggling, but they were loyal. You know, it's interesting because Jesus appealed to that kind of crowd too. And you know what's interesting? Jesus still appeals to that kind of crowd. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Jesus drawing the least of these. Amen. And so here David has his men and he's running for his life. And this is a very, 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 very harsh environment. I mean, I'm talking, I've been there and through the deserts of of the Middle East, I mean, there's nothing. But there is an oasis called En Gedi. And I can remember driving through these these, uh, rocky areas where nothing grew. I mean, there's nothing but just rock, sand, dirt. And then you get to En Gedi. And when you get to Engedi, you see there's something very different about it. It's an oasis. Everything's green. There's orchards. There's crops. There's avocados. There's dates. There's palm trees. There's all this, this life. David finds that little piece of, of what? Of paradise in the middle of this harsh environment. He's been running for his life. He's been thinking to himself, this isn't fair. I'm having to fight for my food now. I've got to fight to survive. I'm sleeping out here like a dog. I'm out here just struggling. And this is where Saul hears that he's hiding in this safe spot. He, he, he gathers up 3,000 of the most able men and he goes after him. Now verse 3, he came to the sheep pens along the way. And a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Oh, come on. All right, did you hear what I just said? David is hiding. Saul has brought out 3,000 men to hunt him down and to bring him, uh, I mean, to kill him. To kill him. 
And he happens to need to take a pit stop. The, the king does. Saul does. He needs to relieve himself. What does that mean? I, I'll let your imagination fill in the blanks. And he goes into the cave. And in the cave he chooses, David is there. Now if you're feeling like, this isn't fair. And all of a sudden, the king shows up in your cave. And his troops are somewhere else. Because he said, hey, give me some privacy. What do you do? What do you do? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Keep reading with me. The men said to David, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're basically telling David, hey, this is God sent. God said that he would bring your enemies to you that you might what? Deal with them according to what you desire. Come on, David. Come on, David. This is it. Can you hear the temptation? Do you see what's going on? And it's interesting because this is what I need you to understand. When you're in that position of feeling this isn't fair, and you're feeling sorry for yourself, and you're feeling like, you know what, I don't deserve this, and none of this is fair, and why is it happening to me, then you can justify a lot. And in this moment, I guarantee you the temptation was to justify Saul as an enemy. But let me ask you something. Is this about enemies? Or is this about submission and authority? Because Saul is the authority that God put in place. And it doesn't matter how you cut it. You still have to understand David is under his authority. And it's easy for David to justify, let me kill him and take his place. After all, God has promised it to me. But that would require taking it into his own hands. And so this is what happens here. David creeps unnoticed, cuts off a corner of Saul's robe as Saul had it laying there and he was doing his business. After David was conscience stricken for having even done such a thing. Why? Because at the end of the day, David understood something. He's not my enemy. He's someone God has put in place and I am under him. And the moment I go against him, I go against the person who put him there. And the person who put him there is Almighty God. And the last thing I want to do is be against Almighty God. Do you hear me? This is about authority and submission and David fearing the Lord. So this is what David says. So he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men. You know, that's what we have to do when the enemy comes to tempt us. We've got to make no provision for the flesh. We've got to run from it and we've got to turn quickly and say that is not what, God, what God's word is about. That is not God's word for my life. I won't do it. How do we know David grabbed this concept? Because we see it in his writings. We see it in the way he lived. We see it in the way he taught Solomon. Read with me in 1 Chronicles 28 what he says to Solomon. He says this, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father 
He says, let me tell you about my God. The God I had a personal relationship. And he says, serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. You know what he was explaining to Solomon? He was explaining to him two valuable things, submission and obedience. They're different, but they go hand in hand. Come on, write this down, someone, because this is what you teach your children. This is what you teach your children, fathers. Submission and obedience. So many times we teach them ambition, rebellion, do it your way. How about what David taught his his son? Let me tell you the secret, he says, son. Submission and obedience. Go to the next slide. Submission deals with the attitude. Obedience deals with the what? Action. Come on, parents. It's possible to be obedient, but not submission, is it? I mean, submissive, isn't it? Anyone ever experienced this with your children? They do what they've been told, but they do it with a horrible attitude. Anyone, anyone find that troubling? When you say, clean your room, and they, not clean my room. And they're slamming, you're like, what is going on in there? You know, in my father's house, that would get you a whooping faster than not doing it. The attitude is just as important. Notice what Solomon is told here by David. Serve him with a wholehearted devotion. The Bible makes it very, very clear that your heart, you love God, but if you love God with your heart, you obey him. If you don't obey him, you don't love him. So he's saying here, he's saying with all your heart, obey God, and with your mind, have a good attitude. That's what he says. Do you think this came in handy when he was running for his life and he felt like, this isn't fair? Come on, how many times have our kids been, Dad, this isn't fair? And what they're doing is they're trying to justify their their behavior towards their siblings, their behavior towards you, their behavior towards whatever they're trying to get away with. Can I tell you something? We're no different before the Lord many times. We go, God, but this isn't fair. And the enemy's going, oh yeah, that's perfect for me to come in and start tempting. Because I can get them to swallow anything. But David's like, no, no, no. I know whom I fear. And so he says to him, he says, see my father, look at my... At this piece of robe in my hand, I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take away my life. Now, this is interesting. This is the next point. He says, may the Lord judge between you and me. What is he saying? I'll tell you what he's saying. I'm going to put it in God's hands. Whenever you feel like things aren't fair and things are conspiring, the enemy is tempting you, that's when you got to dig deep and say, Lord, I'm going to put it in your hands. I'm going to put it in your hands. I'm going to let you work. This is important because the moment you take control, God steps back. It's not that he can't do anything. It's that he won't do it. Why? Because the Lord will not get into a little elbow shoving match with you like you're a brother. He's not a brother. He is your divine authority. And I say this because I had brothers. Any brothers in the room? Any brothers in the room? Isn't it interesting how when dad asks you to do something you don't want to do, no one moves? 
But when dad asks you to do something fun, like let's say it's the very first time you're running a jackhammer and both brothers want to try it. And dad says, hey, one of y'all get, what do you do? You run over there and you start. God's not going to do that with you. You run over there and you start. And God will step back and say, if you think you can do it better than me, by all means. Can I tell you, some of you are going round and round the mountain and God's just saying, how long do you have? Can I tell you, he has longer than you. Your thousand years are like a day to him. So you can go round and round and round. The Lord's going to say, knock yourself out. Sooner or later, you'll take your hands off of it and give it back to me. Can I tell you that's the best place to be is letting God have it. And so he says this, I'll let God have it. But this is interesting. I think what he's doing also is he's saying, Saul, there's only one reason you would be treating me this way. Someone must have gotten in your ear and poisoned the water against me. Someone has told you that I'm rebellious. Someone has told you that I'm evil. Someone has told you that I want to, uh, to usurp your authority. Someone has poisoned the water. Therefore, let me show you the evidence that my heart is pure. And Saul says to him, as David is bowing down and he's calling him his father and he's showing him his heart of submission and obedience, Saul says, oh, my son, David. And they seem to make amends. So David goes away thinking, this is it. This is it. I'm going to be invited back. But what happens when the invitation doesn't come? What happens in your heart when you say, Lord, I've done it right. I resisted the temptation. I stood strong. I did it your way. And yet, you're still in the desert. What happens then? I'll tell you what happens then. The trial becomes more intense. The temptation becomes more intense. And that's where we move into the next chapter. Because Satan had been coming at him through the front door. Now he turns around and comes in through the back door. What's the back door? I'll tell you what the back door is. There's a story in the very next chapter. It's, um, it's, about, it's about David, Nabal, and Abigail. You go, who is Nabal? Who is Abigail? Abigail and Nabal are married. The Bible says that Nabal is a foolish man. Abigail is a beautiful, wise woman. Hmm. Don't smile too, too much, ladies. Some of you are smiling like, yeah, I can, I can, you know. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, chapter 25 tells us that Nabal had quite an enterprise. And he had a lot of sheep and cattle and he was a rancher. And he happened to be in the area where David was running for his life. And David and his men would encamp by this by his, by his ranch, and the Bible tells us that they were a wall around his ranch. What does it mean, a wall? It means they protected him. They protected his cattle. They protected his sheep. They protected his livestock. They protected his, his workers, his ranch hands. They protected everything, and not one was missing, meaning they had integrity. And David is thinking, even on those nights, hungry nights, come on. Anyone ever been out camping? You had to, you have to, hunt your own food to survive. And this is primitive camping. You don't have any high-powered rifles or anything like that. And so there were many nights where his men went to bed hungry, but they were men of integrity and they took care of Nabal's. 
So when Nabal came time for harvest and he came time to uh, shear his sheep, David sent word, we've been a protection and a blessing to you. Would you consider blessing us back? Anything you can spare, we would take. And so he said, this is a time of celebration. He should be happy, right? He sends word. What does Nabal tell him? He says, get lost. I don't know you. He says something like this. What part do I have in David, Jesse, or Jesse's son? I got no part in you. He goes on to say this. This is where I think it really got David. People are in rebellion all the time. And you got rebellious soldiers leaving in disgrace and dishonor all the time. You're just one of them. I want nothing to do with you. Do you see how that got to him? How it got to David? Why? Because he had just been what? Honorable. He had just been saying, I don't know who's telling you what, Saul, but let me show you my heart. Let me show you that I'm a good soldier. Let me show you that I'm under authority. Let me show you that I take God's word seriously. And then this guy comes and just pokes him. Pokes him when he was expecting to receive an invitation to go back to the king. And the invitation didn't come. And this guy poked him. Can I tell you the enemy? The enemy is ruthless. When you're hurting the most, that's when he gets you. That's when he comes and pokes you. That's when he really tries to get at you. And he came and he poked him at just the right time because David said, you know what? I'm supposed to be honorable to the king and I will, but you are nothing to me. And I'm going to kill you and everyone of part of your family. And so David said in his heart to kill them all. When he, had, when he heard this message, he said, put your swords on. We're going to battle. Can you imagine the guys are like, oh, yeah. Oh, these are warriors. They're hungry. This guy just insulted. They have every right. And on their way, someone comes. One of Nabal's servants comes to Abigail, the, the lady of the house, and says, you'll never Guess how stupid your husband is. And, and Abigail's like, uh, try me. <laughs> I think I could. <laughs> and so he says, he said this to David. And something tells me David is coming. And so she quickly hurries herself, gets provisions, gets everything, meets David on the road, falls to her knees, begs for his forgiveness for her house. Please accept this on our behalf. My husband's foolish. He's stupid. He never should have said this on behalf of the entire household. Let me bless you, David. But this is where I think it really gets him. He says, don't avenge yourself. Let it never be said that you had to take things into your own hands. That's point number three. Point number three is she reminds David, leave it in God's hands. You know, because it's one thing to... To get through the first trial and to say, I put it in God's hands, but how many of you know Satan will come back around and try to get you to take it off the altar? Try to get you to take it off and, and to do it in your own strength, to do it in your own craftiness, to do it in your own ability. And to start thinking down the road, start thinking, what if I do this and maybe I can do this, maybe I need to nudge this door, maybe I need to hit this one. And she says that to him. She says, don't, don't take it out of God's hands. Let God deal with it for you. And David says, okay, guys, we're done. Let's go back. 
The next morning, God dealt with it. What happened? Abigail goes back home. Her husband is drinking and getting drunk, celebrating his great harvest. She decides not to tell him anything that night, waits till the morning. He's sober, sitting at the breakfast table, and she says, hey, I went to meet David. He was coming to kill every one of our young men. Can you imagine a family back in the ancient times where you needed everybody on the ranch, but especially the men because they would provide protection and, and, and good workforce? And can you imagine if David had come through and killed every man, every male? Because that's what he said. He said, as God is my witness, I had already decided to kill every male as a part of, that was a part of uh, Nabal's family. <gasps> Harsh. Harsh. So what does God do? He, Abigail still telling her husband this. And he falls stone cold. Bible says that God touched him. His heart failed. And he, many people believe this was a stroke. He had a stroke. And sometime later, he died. When David heard this, listen to what David says. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise be to the Lord, who has what? Upheld my case against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his own head. Wow. Can I tell you, let God fight your battles. Come on, let God fight your battles. Someone needs to get this deep down in their heart. Let God fight my battles. Let God take care of it. Number four, fear the Lord. Oh, pastor, every week you finish with fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. What is fear the Lord? Does that mean go running from him? No, that means go running to him. That means I'm so fearful of being away from you, Lord. I'm so fearful of you being away from me, God. I'm so fearful of being outside your good grace. I'm so fearful of being outside your house. I don't want to live on my own. I know what I can do on my own. I know how tempted I can be. I know how frail I can be. I know how weak I can be. I know how bad my decisions can be. I know how I can make a mess of things. Come on. Is there anyone here that knows a little bit about themselves enough to fear God and to say, Lord, you're what I need. You're what I need. I'm not that little young punk anymore that thought I had it all under control. I know one thing about life, that I cannot live without you, Lord. I can't live without you. I say little young punk because little young punks still think they can do it, and it doesn't have anything with age. It has to do with pride. It has to do with pride. They think they can do it in their own strength, and it's only until God says, okay, go for it, and you fall flat on your face enough times that you look up and you say, Lord, you're what I need. You're what I need. You're what I need. And this is what I'm saying. I'm saying the fear of the Lord will drive you to him. The fear of the Lord will motivate you to disappoint anyone else before you disappoint your God. It doesn't really matter what you say about me, world, as long as God loves me. It doesn't really matter what people think about me. I'm right with God. Lord, you be right with me. God, it's about you. That's what David had. That's what David had. Over and over and over, you see this, this fear of the Lord. This fear in the Lord is grounded in faith because I fear you, Lord. Why? 
Fear means I understand how awesome you are. And I've gotten up close, Lord, and I know that you are bigger than any problem. I've gotten up close, Lord, and I know that if you be for me, who can be against me? Lord, I know that if I please you, I may go a couple hungry nights. I may have some trouble. I may, I may be in the, in the valley, but you'll walk with me. I know, Lord, I know some things about life now. That's what fearing God is. It reminds me of what Peter says when Peter gives this same advice about fearing the Lord and submitting to authority. Submitting to authority. Watch what Peter says. Submit yourselves to the Lord. Excuse me. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Not to some human authority. Every human authority. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who were sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish people. Listen to this. Live as free people. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Here it goes. Fear God. Why does he put fear God right here? Because he wants you to know the key for the very next phrase. Fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor? No, no, no. You got to fear God if you're going to honor the emperor. Because even though the emperor is evil, Nero at the time was putting to death Christians. He was impaling them on stakes, lighting his garden with them as they committed sexual orgy debauchery in front of the Christians as they were dying. And here Peter is saying, you're not an ordinary person. You belong to God. You belong to God. Fear God so much that no emperor and all his evil will shake you from walking out your honor and respect to God first. That's what he's saying. Slaves. One version, it says, servants, in reverent fear to God. There's that fear to God. Submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Notice, he goes on to say, anyone can do what is good. Anyone can do what's easy. Watch. For it is commendable if someone bears up under Oh, yeah, yeah, verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God, right? Meaning that if, it, if you don't deserve it, then it's commendable. But he goes on to say, but what if you deserve it? Let me put it to you this way. That's like me getting a spanking when I was younger for something I did wrong and going up to my dad and going, do you see how I took that spanking? I took it like a man. My dad would be like, uh, yeah, and you deserved it. So he says, he says, it's more commendable when you don't deserve it and yet you can take it like a Christian. He says this, he says, even the harsh leaders, and I looked up that word harsh. In the Greek, it's skolios, which is where we get the word scoliosis. 
And it literally means when you have a crooked leader, a perverse leader, a wicked leader, an unfair leader, a tyrannical or unjust leader. Why am I bringing this up? Because David has been tempted three twice now and he's about to be tempted a third time. And at first he thought, well, Saul is a just leader. He's just been misinformed about me. But what happens when you set the record straight and the guy keeps coming? Now you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's what? He's evil. That he hates you and it's you. He's jealous. He's envious. Now do you see how how the mindset is changing in David? He's thinking, wait, I'm justified to take, take revenge here. So this is what Peter goes on to finish saying. Read it with me. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before the Lord or before God. To this you were called. You know, everybody in Christianity is always talking about our calling. What's your calling? What's your calling? This is our calling. To be David's. Even when the chips are stacked against, even when things aren't going right, even when that's not fair. And then he goes on to say, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you his own example. And this is where we finish the story. Chapter 26. So we've been through 24. He spares Saul's life. 25, he's tempted with this evil man, Nabal. He passes that test. Chapter 26, he thinks, okay, everything's good. I explained, I showed him my heart. The king's good with me. Then he finds out the king's still chasing after him. So this is what happens. One night, they're camped near David, and David approaches the camp where the, is, where the 3,000 troops are, and he finds them all asleep. The Lord caused them to fall asleep. And as they were asleep, David turns to some of his men and he says, who will go with me? By chance, you want to know who volunteered? The bloodthirsty young guy. Isn't that the way it always is? Abishai is Joab's brother, and these brothers are bad news. <laughs> I mean, they are just like warrior warriors. And Abishai is really like, he, he, he's one of those guys that, that leaps before he thinks or looks. And he says, I'll go with you. And so David's like, oh, okay, come on. So they go into the camp. And I really believe David left his, his, his intentions behind. What do I mean by that? Or, or he had no intention to kill the king. So I don't think he came in there armed. I think he wanted to show his heart to the king one more time. And so he goes up there. And as, as fate would have it, what is sitting right next to Saul as he's laid out? His spear. His spear is stuck in the sand right there. And so they go up there. And Abishai is saying, oh, this is our chance, David. And Abishai is telling the, David, David, I know you have trouble in your heart and your conscience. I get all that. So you don't have to do it. What? I'll do it for you. Don't you love friends like that? Don't you love friends like that? Many people are sitting in jail because they had friends like that. But I didn't steal the car. 
but you were with them. Right? And so, so you have this friend going, come on, David, just give me the word. You don't have to say, and I can see him looking intently at David. You know, just give me a, right? You know, just, just give me a little. All you got to do is just twitch your nose a little bit. I got him. And this is what he tells David. He says, I'll take the spear and I'll do it right the first time. I won't hit him twice. I'll stab him right through the heart. Can you see him going? They're asleep. Everyone's asleep. So they're having this conversation like right on top of the king. He's like, come on. He's like, come on, give me something. David's like, does that mean like, Can, can you, I mean, I don't know. Can you, can you feel the tension? And so he says, no. He says, no. Listen to what David says. For the Lord forbid, forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear in the jug and let's go. And he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, I'm going to trust on the Lord. The Lord put him in office, the Lord will remove him. The Lord anointed him, the Lord will take him out in battle or he'll die in his sleep. God will do it at his time. I'm not going to get in the way. Can you hear David singing to his men? But I got a promise I can hold in the middle of the struggle. God, if you said it, You'll perform it. May not be how I want it to. But here's what I'll do. I'm gonna wait on you. I'm gonna wait on you. I've tasted your... I've trusted your promise. I'm gonna wait on you. And he goes on to tell his men this. Here's what you should do. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I've tasted his goodness. I've trusted his promise. I'm going to wait on. Oh, you thought Dante wrote that song? You thought Maverick City wrote that song? No, let me tell you who wrote the song. Let me show you who wrote the song. In Psalms 27 verse 14, coming out of the cave, coming out of the, the, the struggle of what he was going through. David penned these words, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, wait, I say, wait on the Lord, I say. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? David didn't just sing it, he lived it. And he sang it as he lived it. And because he sang it as he lived it, God showed him what he could do. Do you realize it was David that said, I just read Dante's lyrics who says this. He says, God, if you said it, you'll perform it. Can I tell you those are David's words? He said, God always performs what his word declares. And if his word said it, then he shall do it. His word said I would be king. I will be king. Period. I don't have to get in his way. I'm leaving it in your hands, Lord. 
What did God say to your life? What did God say about your children? Quit doubting him. Quit trying to get it in your own hands. Quit trying to let the enemy come out the back door and get you to doubt the Lord. Stand firm. Give it to him. This is where we finish. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to the words of Jesus. To the words of Jesus. Because what did, what did Peter say? He said, fear the Lord, submit to authority, let God handle it. Look at your Lord Jesus. Out of his mouth, he didn't defend himself. He didn't go out there in his own strength and try to do it. He said, Lord, I'm going to let you be in charge of my future. And if the future's a cross, and thank goodness it was. Thank goodness it was. To the point that even, even, even Pilate says this in Mark 15. Mark 15, chapter, uh, verse 4, he says this. He says, aren't you going to answer? What is this, what is this secular governor telling Jesus? He said, I know they're railroading you. I know they're railroading you. I know they're speaking lies. I can see it. They're envious of you. You're an innocent man. To the point that even what? Washed his hands. And here he's saying, speak up for yourself. Defend yourself. You know why? Because Pilate had been a governor for some time. And he had seen this little charade before. And he had seen people be accused. And in that time, you had three options. You would be sentenced to life imprisonment. You would be put to death or you would be acquitted. Those are the three options. And so here he had seen people defend themselves and say, no, I didn't do it. And he said, she said, and they'd go back and forth. Here Jesus stood quietly. Why? Because he feared the Lord. Because he put it in God's hands. And he had said, Lord, what did he pray in Gethsemane? What did he pray in Gethsemane? Not my will be done, but what? But thy will be done. He had already settled it. If it's possible for me not to go to the cross, but not my will be done, thy will be done. God said, you have to go to the cross. So in that moment, he stood there. And Pilate's going, you're not going to defend yourself? I know what God's called me to do. You watch the way these two come together. David, Psalms 31. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock and my refuge. A strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name. Lead and guide me. Keep me free from the traps that is set for me. From the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. How many times does he have to keep reminding himself? You are my refuge. You are my refuge. It's not this cave. It's not my hands. It's not my strength. It's not anything. It's you are my refuge. Now watch this. Watch this verse. Come on. This is where it really comes down. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now go with me to Luke 23 verse 46. Jesus called out to the Lord. Last words as he breathed his last breath. 
Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see why Peter says, this is what I'm talking about. You fear the Lord, and as you fear the Lord, you take Jesus as the example who who gave himself to the one who judges justly. Isn't that what David did over and over? He said, I'm not going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to let God judge between us. I'll let God go before me. In this day, there's so many people taking things into their own hands. Christians, I want to leave you with this. I don't believe in fairy tales. I guess I've outgrown them. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that there's something bigger than me. Because I've seen in a hospital room, hmm. the doctor said sorry. Lord, we trust you. There's nothing more we can do. Well, it wasn't through. Let's just have a conversation with the Lord. Lord, I'm going to trust you. I've got a promise I can hold. In the middle of the struggle. God, if you said it, you performed. May not be how I want you to. May not be how I want you to. But here's what I'll do. I'm going to wait on you. I've tasted your goodness. Isn't it David that said, come and taste, for the Lord is good. That's what our life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be lived for the world to see. There's something different about those people. There's something different about those people, and you can say, I've tasted his goodness. I've trusted his promise. Come taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and walk with him. Let me introduce you to my king. His name is Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Until you return, we wait on you. I love you, church.